for me. Um, we're starting a, a new chapter in our church. Thank you. <laughs> that means you heard me. Um, today's about celebrating what God has done in this church in the last two years as he's been planning this day for us. You know, God chose Pastor Sergey as the person to come to Chatham. But all of us have participated in that process by being sensitive to the Spirit, listening to what God had to say to us, and praying and fasting and really giving it to God. And so it's, it's an exciting morning to start this process. And there's just so much that has gone into it. So this morning as we do this installation service, it's about a celebration, it's about an excitement, but it's also about a time to officially launch um, Pastor Sergey and his mission and his ministry here. So we're going to go through a number of things this morning. Uh, first, uh, there will be a charge to Pastor Sergey that will be being provided by Pastor Q, longtime friend of Sergey and also a pastor in Chicago who started a, a planted a church out of their Chicago church, and uh, he refers to Sergey as his best friend. And what a better person to charge him with this path. And then uh, Dave Greiner will be coming up, and he'll be presenting uh, a charge to the entire congregation. Uh, as we are also welcoming them, we also have a part in this. It's not just we're expecting the pastor to come in and him to do everything, and we're just going to sit back in the pew and be rewarded. We've got a part in this, and we're going to participate in this. And then um, Sergey will come up along with the elders, and um, a number of other pastors are going to come forward, and we're going to pray for him. Um, that time, Pastor Al Frank, who's uh, Regional Associate Superintendent for the Central District of EFCA, will be coming uh, to help close out that time of prayer. Um, he has a heart for planning churches, but he also just has a heart for the church of God. And he demonstrated a, that to us because he was such a big help to the pastor search team in helping us go through this process of uh, finding Pastor Sergey. So we, we definitely appreciate that heart he has for us and this church and that effort that he put forth. So um, we're going to proceed now, and I just uh, ask Pastor Q to come forward and, for, and give the charge to, to Pastor Sergey. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Whoa, all right. Um, <laughs> My name is, is Q. I'm a pastor in Chicago, and, and uh, we planted out of Christian Fellowship, which is where um, Pastor Sergey's last ministry was. And I do want to stress and emphasize, he is my best friend. It's just, I just really need to stress that, because he needs to know that probably more than anyone else. He is my best friend, and I am a very jealous Q. So I'm only five hours away, so no one even think about infringing on that. All right. It is, it is my, my privilege and my honor to um, do the charge to Sergey. My text that I've selected is 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Pastor Sergey, first you've been called to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. God has entrusted many of us with the marvelous privilege of shepherding his flock in the form of a local church. But we have to know and we have to stress that the emphasis is on the fact that it is God's flock. It is not yours. It is not your church. Because Christ is the chief shepherd. Peter himself referred to himself as merely an under-shepherd. And in order to be effective as an under-shepherd, you'll need to be in close contact with the chief shepherd. And that, of course, is the Lord Christ. You must live under his lordship and guide the members of the flock to follow him as Lord. If for any moment you ever view this flock as yours or this ministry as yours, the church will be in serious trouble. To be the pastor of a church is is more than just a, a vocational choice. It's more than fulfilling a job description that's been prepared by a search committee. It's a holy calling and a sacred trust given to you by the chief shepherd. No one should ever be called to pastor a church who has not been first called and anointed by God. My next charge to you, as it is in the text, is that you serve the Lord and his and tend to his flock willingly. Serve willingly, which means voluntarily. That's the only way that we're able to serve the Lord and his church effectively. The Lord will never force us to be involved in any ministry. He calls us and invites us into ministry, but we do have the freedom to say yes or no. To serve the Lord under constraint or because we feel compelled to do so against our will is not to serve him. If that's your motivation for ministry, it's much better that you're not involved in ministry. That's merely disobedience, and the flock that you've been given will suffer because of it. Third, our text says, serving not for shameful gain, but eagerly. We should never serve for monetary or personal gain. That denotes a spirit of greediness. If we're involved in caring for the flock of God merely for our own personal gain, or for what personal gain we can derive from it, we're ministering for the wrong reason. If we minister for the wrong reason, the blessing of God cannot be upon us. Most of us who have entered into ministry do not do it for monetary gain. Pastor Sergey is very capable and gifted. He could easily find a job in the you know, non-ministry world that would probably pay him a lot more. He's very talented. And so with that, Financial concerns can never be the primary reason to be in ministry. Along with that, personal gain can't be a motivation. Pastors have great influence. They're able to um, derive a sense of power 
And that also is a temptation that has led many people into ministry, and we have to be aware of that and be careful of that. Being called to lead a church will bring you in a position of being a center of attention and give you authority, but you have to be careful to never use that for evil, but for good only. Minister eagerly. Don't seek what you can get out of it, but rather what you can put into it. Investing in the lives of other people is among the highest callings and greatest privilege which God has given you and entrusted you to. Serve eagerly with a forward spirit. Serve readily, willingly, and serve the flock of God, not for monetary gain, but eagerly. Finally, Serve not as being Lord over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. God has not called you to be a dictator over this church, not even a benevolent dictator. And unfortunately, we see that today far too often, that many pastors and many local churches follow that pattern. Well, being a senior pastor with all the power, may seem like the most efficient form of government, it can be extremely devastating. God has called you to serve his people and not to dominate them. Jesus himself practiced servant leadership, and that's what he has entrusted to you. An effective shepherd gives his life for his sheep, and an effective pastor gives his life for the flock of God. That type of pastor does not merely tell his people where to go or what to do, but instead he leads them by example. A pastor models. That is one of the holy roles of a pastor, to be a model for his people. He is not a model of one who has reached perfection, but a model of one who has denied himself, is taking up his cross daily, and is following Jesus as the Lord of his life. Paul himself would say that he was pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Sergei, just like Paul, you should say, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Or simply put, follow my example as I follow Christ. That's my charge to you. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, Serve not by constraint, but willingly. Serve not for monetary gain, but eagerly. And to serve by not being Lord over those entrusted you, but by being examples to the flock. And if you are faithful to the Lord and to his flock, a marvelous promise is made to you. In verse 4 it says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. You are accountable to Christ, the chief shepherd, for the stewardship of how you've cared for this flock, and he will reward you for being faithful in your ministry. Sergey, are you now willing to take charge of this congregation as their pastor in joyful submission to God's will, Jesus Christ's authority, and the Holy Spirit's leading? By God's grace, I am. Sergey, do you devote yourself to prayer and the ministry of the word for the glory of God and the good of this congregation? 
By God's grace, I do. Sergey, do you promise to advance sound doctrine, godly living, and gospel mission as you interact with the people in this church, the people and the leaders of other churches, and the people of this community? By God's grace, I do. Sergey, will you endeavor to fashion your own life and that of your household according to the way of Christ, that you may be a pattern and example to God's people? By God's grace, I will. Well, I've been given the privilege of sharing a charge to you all as a congregation. First of all, I express my joy with you as you celebrate the beginning of a new season at Pastor Surya's installation as your new teaching pastor. And I believe you've made a spirit-led decision. I know it's been a long time coming. And in my few interactions with Sergey, I found him to be warm and kind and insightful. And I believe he'll make a wonderful shepherd here at Chatham. I came across a list of ten biblical exhortations an elder, including a pastor, should be able to expect his flock to provide for him. And we're not going to take the time to look each of these up, but if you want to write down these four chapter references, you can have those at your disposal and study those later. But they all come from 1 Timothy 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, James 5, and Hebrews 13. And here's what God's Word exhorts you all to do, not only for Sergei, but for all the elders of this congregation to know them, to esteem them highly, to count those who rule well to be worthy of double honor, to be cautious not to receive accusations against them, to remember them, to follow their faith, to consider the outcome of their way of life, to obey and submit to them, to call for them to pray over you when you are sick and to greet them in the Lord. Of course, time won't allow me to speak on each and I wouldn't even pretend to know how to prioritize the most important of these. We know they're all important because they're in Scripture. And I know that Pastor Rick spent the last three Sundays of his tenure here challenging you on some of these things. As I reflect back on my 23 years as one of your pastors, I can do nothing but commend you for the gracious way that you treated my wife and my children and myself. You cared for us. You provided for us. You prayed for us. You even sent us out with your blessing when we shared the burden that God placed upon us to expand our ministry from being a local one here at Chatham to becoming one where I'd be pastoring pastors around the world. As Marina and I talked about, the one thing that I would desire and even long to see from Chatham for any pastor, I thought of one thing that I actually put on top of the list. And I invite you to turn your Bibles to 3 John. To 3 John. And though this verse does not mention pastors or elders or congregations, 
it certainly is appropriate for you to keep in mind as you accept this charge today. I'd like to read the first four verses of 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And now this verse. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. For those of us who are parents of biological children, we know something of the joy when our kids make a profession of faith or are baptized or whenever they show by word or deed that their heart is fixed on Jesus. And on the other hand, some of us know the great burden when a child departs from that path of life. The aged apostle John may have been thinking of the church at Ephesus that he had pastored for a number of years as he wrote these words. He says, Whenever I hear the word that's, that you all are, are walking in the truth, it just gives me such great joy. So brothers and sisters, as I challenge you with this charge this morning, if you want to great, grant the greatest joy to your elders, if you want to ensure that Pastor Sergei's heart will be abundant in joy, you will continue to walk in the truth. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the word of God. The truth not only in what you believe in doctrine, but that you live out day by day. Sometimes we attempt to separate love and truth. That's a false dichotomy. Jesus always lived out the gospel in perfect love and in perfect truth. And he wrote in 1 John chapter 3, 16 to 18, By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So brothers and sisters, I ask today that you will commit yourselves to bring great joy to Pastor Sergey and the spiritual leaders at Chatham by continuing to walk in the truth. May God richly bless all of you as you begin this new season together. I'd like to ask you to stand, and I'm going to ask you now a series of questions. I know that you all had an opportunity to see these ahead of time. So first of all, People of God, do you, the people at Chatham, receive Sergei Marchenko as your pastor in joyful submission to God's will, Jesus Christ's authority, and the Holy Spirit's leading? Do you promise to receive the word of God from his mouth in humility and love and to submit to his spiritual authority under Christ? 
Do you promise to follow his leadership in pursuit of sound doctrine, godly living, and gospel mission in this church and in this community? Will you continually pray for him, uphold, and encourage him in his ministry? This time I invite uh, Pastor Sergey and others, pastors, elders, to come up and pray for Pastor Sergey. You may be seated, the rest of you.
installation service and praying for them and committing ourselves to this task. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to this point. The Father, as we uh, sang together, the church is one foundation. It, it just brought to mind um, your faithfulness mm-hmm. through all of this. Um, you have been through, uh, been with us through uh, some difficult times, and yet you have held us together for your purposes. And now we come today, and as we sang uh, to this morn of song, as we celebrate what you've done for us. Mm-hmm. Father, I just uh, thank you for how you've guided, uh, guided all of us in prayer and fasting uh, through the process of, uh, of finding Sergei. And uh, we didn't find him, you brought him to us, mm-hmm. Lord, and we're grateful for that. And you brought us to him. It was almost like uh, we all knew that. It was evident to all, uh, your, your work and your hand in this. And uh, it's just uh, a marvelous thing. You're an awesome God, and we're grateful for that. And Father, as uh, Sergei begins his ministry here, uh, we just lift him up uh, to you. Um, we know he is a man of God and a man after your own heart. And Father, we just pray that you would protect him, you would encourage him. Uh, help us to be mindful, uh, to pray for him uh, as Dave has charged us. And Father, all of those elements that we acknowledge by God's grace, so we do ask for your grace that we can do that and bring it to mind for us to support him in all of those ways that we have committed. Father, we entrust him in his ministry to you. And we just now have joyful anticipation for what you have in store for us. And it's with joy that uh, we pray for Sergey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you first loved us. Jesus, loving the church so much that he would give himself up for her. This is your church. Lord, you have been at work, and it is so awesome to see that. When Sergei was 16 years old, living in the Ukraine, who moves in next door, a couple of American missionaries. Mm-hmm. Lord, that's you at work. Thank you that they presented the glorious gospel that made him thirsty for Jesus Christ, and he gave his life. And now he's become a missionary. And he has presented you to others, pointed them to you, pointed them to the life, the new life in Christ. Lord, uh, thank you for Sergey. I remember the first time speaking to him. I just knew such a humble servant leader filled with the love of Christ. Thank you for him. Thank you for his family. Thank you for Jillian and, the, and their four girls. Lord, would you provide incredible relationships with them here at Chatham, but also in their neighborhood and in school. Bring them good friends and use them for the sake of your gospel. Yes. Lord, would you, would you make every member here a missionary? Ambassadors for Christ in this community. 
where about eight out of ten people are not in a church this morning. So many far from you. Would you use Sergei, his family, and this church family to be your missionaries, your ambassadors, that the gospel might grow and flourish here in this community, and that disciples would would be made, disciples who make disciples who make disciples, a grand ripple effect for your glory and for your good. So, Lord, we just thank you for all that you will do. We love you. We thank you. And all God's people said together, Amen. 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 profoundly grateful to be your pastor. Jillian and my girls have been uh, overwhelmed by your love and help and generosity already. We, we feel at home here. We feel accepted and uh, just drawn into your community. It's been a wonderful experience for us to move here and settle into our house. So much help from all of you, so I'm very, very thankful to you, everybody who has contributed and helped us and painted our house. A lot of painting, so thank you. Thank you for that. I'm thankful uh, to Q, my best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Al and Pastor Dave and the elders, and um, just thankful for all of you men too, how you have welcomed me and prayed for me just now. Now, I think about this service and uh, especially the installation part of it, and uh, it's got to be so strange for anyone who is not familiar with Christianity. I mean, we get together, we, uh, we, we read words off the screen together, right, in unison. We sing songs together, and uh, we, we put money in baskets. We all have books and journals and pens that we bring with us. All those things must seem just really weird to anyone who's not a part of church and a part of Christ. And so the question that has to be asked and answered is, why are we doing all those strange things? Why are we here? Why am I here coming into this new community, becoming part of this church? Why are we doing these things that that seem like a wedding? with vows being exchanged and a prayer. Why are we doing all of that? And the answer I'd like to propose to you this morning and and hopefully convince you of, of its truthfulness is that church is a glorious thing. Church is special. It's worth our time. It's worth our affection. It's worth our effort. I'd like us to to think about that this morning, and so I am shifting focus off of myself and and to the church. I'd like us to celebrate what God has designed the church to be, and in in a microcosm, this is going to be here at Chatham. God's design is going to be here, and it is already here. So I'd like us to meditate on that and and think about the specialness and the, the gloriousness of the church. Church is a glorious, glorious thing. So I'd like us to, uh, to read 1 Timothy 3, 
14 through 16, and if you're able, would you stand with me as I read God's Word? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. This is Apostle Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, who is pastoring a church in Ephesus, and he's instructing him. Verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but if I am writing these things to you, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So you see verse 14, Paul is, Paul is saying, my, my purpose in writing this letter is to, to help you understand, young Timothy, how to behave in church. What do we do in church? How do we organize it? What are the elders supposed to do? What are the deacons are supposed to do? What are the members supposed to do? How does that all work? How do different classes and genders interact in church? So it reads as if it's an instruction manual. It's very practical. First Timothy is very practical. It's very specific. And so we see that purpose, and yet right after Paul mentions that his purpose is to teach how to behave in church, it's as if he gets distracted and all this lofty language pours out. He's talking about church being the household of God and the pillar and buttress of the truth. That's not how you write instruction manuals, do you? And then he, and then he, he cites a poem. And in your Bibles, you will see that it's, it's laid out differently. The mystery of godliness, the, these facts of the gospel, are laid out differently because it's a song, it's a poem. So as I read this, the sense I get is, is that Paul is overwhelmed with the glory of the church. He's trying to stay practical, but his mind wanders and he, he contemplates the beauty of the church. It, it's like a pediatrician examining a new baby and teaching the parents how to feed the baby, how to take care of the baby, and then the pediatrician just kind of stops and says, but look how cute she is. You guys just made such a good baby. And that's what Paul is doing here, I think. He's, he's distracted by the beauty and the glory of the church. Yes, practical aspects are important. But there's something special about the church. And so I want us to stay in that moment of contemplating the glory of the church. Church is glorious because it's the church of the living God. The church of the living God God is here. It's His church. He is present here. And so it is His glory that emanates onto the church. So the church is glorious because God is glorious. And the conduit through which God's glory comes into the church is Jesus Christ. We know from Scripture that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. In, um, in John 1.14, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. 
Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the glory of God, the very life of God, His very essence, His very nature, comes to us through Jesus, His birth, God becoming human, His life, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, His suffering and death in place of sinners, His resurrection proclaiming victory over sin, death, the world, and the devil, His ascension now to rule justly over His kingdom and over His church, and of course the promise of His return. That's what we call the gospel. The gospel is a receptacle of glory. Through Christ, through the events of His life, death, resurrection, ascension, promise of His return, comes God's glory into the church, and it rests on us. So the church is glorious because God is glorious and because His glory is communicated through Christ, through the gospel, onto us and rests on the church. What is the gospel? We throw that word around and I've, I've said this is what we call the gospel. What, what is that? Let me summarize it this way. In His great love, God sent His Son Jesus to bring sinners back into a relationship with Himself. Jesus removed all the barriers and satisfied all the requirements for that to happen. Not only did He accomplish everything in our place, but He also sent His Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we can accept what He did trust in His accomplishments, and actually experience this new glorious life with God. That's grace. Not that we do something to earn that, but Jesus has done something for us so that a relationship with God could be restored. That's the gospel. That's the receptacle of glory. That's how glory comes to us through Jesus and His gospel. This is where it would be an excellent time to say a hearty amen, right? And, and perhaps, you know, if, if, you, if you are more of a thoughtful kind, maybe a so true. Maybe you can say so true. <laughs> or if you're a teenager and, and uh, you can do a vaguely affirmative, I know, right? <laughs> Something like that. But some, some affirmation that, that the gospel is meaningful to us. Now, I took a little bit of time on this introduction because unless we get this, the rest of the passage and the rest of the sermon doesn't make sense. God in His glory, through Christ in the gospel, gives us this new life and it rests on the church and makes the church beautiful and glorious. Four quick points. Quick points. When you say that, I'm not going to do quick points. So I, you have to discourage me if you want quick points. The church is glorious because, number one, it lives the gospel. Number two, it upholds the gospel. Number three, it proclaims the gospel. And number four, it sings the gospel. It lives the gospel. It upholds the gospel. It proclaims the gospel. And finally, it sings the gospel. How does the church live the gospel? Well, Paul calls the church a household of God. A household 
a family. That means we live as a family because God in Christ has adopted us into His family. Church is not a building. That's familiar, right? You've heard that. Church is also not a business. It's, it's not a program. It's not a lecture hall. It's not an entertainment venue. Church is not a social agency. Church is not a school. It's not a concert. Church is not a club. Church is not a political party. The best analogy to what church is meant to be is family. It's all over the Scriptures. Church is family. This is the biblical view of church. Even things we do on Sundays, you think about it, you you come and you greet each other and you hug each other. And then we have a meal together. And we sit around, we talk, we stick around after church and talk. Sometimes we go out to lunch. That's what families do. We treat each other as family. And we're family because God is our adoptive Father. In love He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Ephesians 1, 4. God chose us to be His children. Let this, the, the truth of that statement sink in on this Father's Day. God chose us to be in His family. Most of parenting just sort of happens. You birth a child, you don't know what they're going to be like. You just hope they're going to take after some of your better traits. But when you're adopting a child, you're making a decision to adopt this person. Of course, in the human circumstances, we don't know what that person is going to be like. And we don't know a lot of the history, usually. But in God's mind... Get this, He knew and He knows everything about you. And He chose to love you and to make you part of His family. He knows everything about you. All of your insecurities, all of your past and present and future failures, all your strengths and weaknesses. And God said, I'm going to welcome this person into my household so they could be with me forever as part of my family. It's a remarkable thing to think of salvation in terms of, in terms of adoption, which the Bible does frequently. God choosing for you to be in His family. And of course, not only do we acquire a loving father, but also we acquire a whole host of relatives, don't we? all related to one another in Christ. Like in any family, some relatives are great, right? We have uh, Aunt Connie and Uncle Richard, and they're just great. Just love our kids. They just want to hang out with our kids all the time. They live in Florida, which makes it nice for us to visit. (laughs) Some relatives are like that. But some are not so much. You got all sorts of people in a family. When you become a child of God and are accepted into God's family, expressed in your local church, 
you get all sorts of relatives. Yes, you do get the crazy uncle, right? You get the cousin who struggles with addiction. You get the perfect little sister who can do no wrong. You get the always mad teenage nephew, the constantly texting niece. You get the aging grandparents. And then you get that one guy who just kind of shows up at Thanksgiving and you don't know exactly who he's related to, (laughs) but he keeps showing up. That's church. And if it's family, we bear with one another. Those are real issues, and all of us have real issues. And so when we're struggling, we lean on others. And when other people struggle, we learn patience and we love them. Now, if church was a business, we would fire them. That's what you do in a business. But church isn't a business. It's family. So you stick together and you work through those issues and you love each other, whatever the circumstances are. Now, consider your place in this family. What is it? If you were to think of Chatham as a family, as a household... What's your place in it? What are your privileges? What are your responsibilities? Are you in charge of the budget? Do you help out with dishes and groceries, cleaning? Do you fix the cars? What's your role here? I'd like you to embrace your role in this family. If you're on the fringes and maybe you're just coming in, maybe you're just investigating what church is like, what Chatham is like, I'd like you to jump in. And find your place here, because you are gifted. God has given you particular gifts that matter here, that fit perfectly into this family. Let's discover them together. Let's find a place for you. And if you're already engaged, if you're already involved, I'd like to affirm that and say that's great that you're doing that. Rejoice in that. Be fulfilled in that, that God has placed you in this family and He's using you to bless others. This is how we live the gospel as a family. Secondly, the church upholds the gospel. Paul describes the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, Ephesus is where Timothy was pastoring, where the church was. And Ephesus was well known in the ancient world for its temple. It's a temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of the hunt and fertility. In fact, the temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. So people would come to look at the temple and to worship at that temple. That temple was supported by over 120 marble columns. It's a remarkable building. I bet Paul is thinking about that when he says the church is like a column. It's a pillar. It's a buttress for the truth. It supports the building, and the building is the truth. The church upholds the truth. This is where we need to be very clear because the church does not create the truth. The church doesn't define the truth. We uphold it. We found it. It's given to us by God and we uphold it. We support it. We prop it up. We build our lives on what is true, what is real. It's not negotiable. We don't get to decide what's real, it just, it just is. Reality is like that, it's, it's just what it is. How sad it is that when we, pastors and churches and Christians, change 
and adapt and, and tweak the truth to please the culture or the popular opinion or even the sensibilities of, of the people gathered. How can you change reality? It's either real or it's not. It's like when you take a driver's test and, and uh, you say, why, well, I, I really don't think I should be stopping at stop signs. That doesn't seem right to me. I would prefer to just go through them. And speed limit doesn't seem to matter to me. I just, I don't think it's real to me. And I would like to drive on the other side of the road. That's just my preference. That seems right to me. And I'd like to follow my heart. And so that seems to me what I should be doing. And a good instructor would tell you, that's crazy. Because that's just how things work. Because everybody else is doing this. So you just can't change reality. You just can't pretend things aren't the way they are and just do something completely different. Now truth, this term truth in First and Second Timothy doesn't just mean a generic body of facts. It refers to the Christian teaching, to the gospel itself. The reason is because the gospel explains reality to us. It tells us what's real in this world. Take the gospel out, and our whole worldview is going to be wrong. Things like God, sin, grace, those pieces, you take them out, how can you explain evil in the world? How can you explain things in your life that are happening? How can you explain beauty? Those things don't work unless you have the foundational pieces of the gospel, that God exists, that God is the creator, that we have walked away from him and we are sinners. That's why we do things wrong. That God sent his son to save us and that he died and rose for us and he offers this forgiveness to us and we can have a new life and a meaningful life and a better life. And that the Holy Spirit is with us and He guides us and He explains reality to us day in, day out. Those things matter because they give us a picture of what real and what isn't. They explain what's happening around us. When I think of upholding the truth and telling the truth, I think of an episode of, of Friends. There was a TV show, Friends. Is this the first reference to Friends in, at Chatham? Okay. It's a show about it was six people in Manhattan and young people doing crazy things as young people do. One of the characters, Phoebe, uh, she, she would always sing at coffee shops and just kind of make up her own songs. And then she was offered this job to sing at a, at a public library, sing kids' songs to kids at a library. However, to the parents' surprise, her songs turned out to be a little too real. She would sing, for example, the Barnyard song was about cows becoming hamburgers. And so kids learned that's where we get hamburgers. And she sang about death and sex and those kind of things. And so parents were shocked, of course. But the kids loved it. And so she got fired, of course. 
and the kids found her at a coffee shop. And so the, the closing scene of the episode is the bunch of kids just, just thronging into, into the coffee shop, and they're saying, is this where the lady who sings the truth is? Because they wanted the truth. They wanted somebody to explain to them how things really work. Now the question to us is, do we understand reality? Is our perception of the world, so your life day to day, your work, your friendships, your future, is all of that shaped by the gospel itself? I understand that's how it is at church. I, I know this is what we talk about here. But once you leave, do you uphold the truth? Do you live your life? Do you, do you think, do you feel in line with the gospel? Is the gospel of Christ your key to reality? Does it explain things to you? So then when you are in a conflict or when, when you are at a, at, a, at a dilemma in life, does the gospel inform those decisions? Where you say, what's real? What is real? How do I process this? What matters? What are the pieces that I need to consider? How does sin and grace and God fit into my life now? Number three, the church proclaims the gospel. Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The church is glorious because it confesses the mystery of godliness. Let me explain what that phrase means. When was the last time you said the mystery of godliness? The phrase seems to mirror the slogan of the idolatrous Ephesus that we read about in Acts 19. Remember when Paul was in Ephesus, the same town where Timothy is now and pastor in a church, the same town with the temple of of Artemis. When Paul was in Ephesus, his ministry was so successful that it affected the local economy. You see, people started following Jesus and were no longer buying the little statues of Artemis, and so started affecting the local businesses. Ephesus, of course, known for its worship of this goddess Artemis, now felt threatened by the gospel. As it often happens, the gospel exposes the idols and, and rids the city of its idols. So a riot started, and their chant was, now if you remember that, their chant was very similar to what Paul says here about the church. Their chant was, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so they would chant it, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, as they try to gather the Christians and kick them out or put them to death. So if the idolatrous Ephesus confesses great is Artemis of the Ephesians, the church must confess great is the mystery of godliness. How are those two confessions different? Both answer the same question. What makes life good and meaningful? In other words, the mystery of godliness is the secret of a good life. The mystery of godliness simply means a secret of a good life. Life that's acceptable to God, life that's beneficial to us. And both of these confessions, 
Great is Artemis of the Ephesians and great is the mystery of godliness. Answer that question in terms of worship. Ephesians are saying, worship Artemis. That's where your good life comes from. The economy is based on it. The joy of life is in the worship and the beauty of the temple. All of that is tied to the worship of a goddess. The church opposes that and says, no. We have a different secret to a happy and good, godly, acceptable to God life. And that is Jesus himself. So we put Jesus against any other idol. And we don't have to go to Greek gods for that. We can go to money and pleasure and power, whatever you want in life, that is worshipped like people used to worship Artemis. And we say, instead of that, you need to have Jesus. Jesus gives you a good life. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness, and then he says, he The mystery is is a he. The mystery is Jesus himself. The secret to a happy life is Jesus himself. He could have just said the mystery of Christ, but he says the mystery of godliness and then talks about Christ because Jesus himself is the secret of godliness. The key to a fulfilling, rewarding, meaningful life is Jesus. We're accepted by God through Jesus. We're accepted with others through Jesus in the church. And we live a meaningful, fulfilling life because of Jesus. So by way of application, how do you pursue a meaningful, good, godly life? There are many idols out there in our culture. There are many influential people in our culture who are telling you this is the secret. Sometimes they call books the secret. And they tell you that this is how you become happy. That's the confession of the Ephesians. The church confesses, no. Great is the mystery of godliness, which is in Jesus. So we proclaim it, we confess it. We not just uphold the truth, but we communicate it to others. The secret is now out. What used to be a mystery is now revealed. Now, now look at how Paul describes these, these things about Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. All these things have to do with Jesus being revealed. The mystery is revealed. The secret is out. We have the secret that we can tell others about. It's been revealed through us into the church so we can tell the world. Jesus, who was manifested in the flesh at his birth in the incarnation, who was vindicated by the Spirit at his resurrection, proven to be the Son of God, who was revealed to angels during his birth and temptation in the desert and the resurrection, of course. He was preached to the nations, both the Jews and the Gentiles heard the gospel. He was believed on by all sorts of people in the world, even during Paul's life, but certainly now. And finally, the disciples watched him go up in glory during his ascension, a very public, visible thing. 
We know that. We have experienced that. Our question that we've asked God, what is a happy life, has been answered in Jesus. Now we have to tell others. The glory that is coming from God through Christ into the church is supposed to spread into the world. We get to tell others the secret to a happy life. And finally, number four, and very briefly, the church sings the gospel. The church is glorious because it sings the gospel. Almost all commentators agree that Paul here uses a church hymn, a church song, or at least a portion of it that was familiar to Timothy and possibly even to the church in Ephesus. In your Bibles, you can see it's laid out differently. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. It has a cadence to that. Why is this significant? Because the gospel doesn't just affect what we do or what we don't do, what we believe or how we spend our time. It affects your very heart. As Paul considers the glory of the church, he cannot help but break out into a song. Isn't that wonderful? He's writing a letter, and he has to revert to poetry to express what he feels. That's the point of poetry. This is why we sing songs at church. Because it's not enough just to affirm something in your mind. It's not enough just to resolve to do something for God. It has to penetrate into the deepest part of you, into your heart. And the way you know that it has penetrated is when you have this desire to sing. When it overflows. Now, we all do it differently. I'm not saying we're all great singers. I'm not saying we all express our emotions in the same way. But is your heart so full of the gospel that it comes out in something like a poem, a song, a dance. Something you just say, there's no other way to express it but this. It's like the sound of music, right? Let's make some dresses out of curtains and hey, let's just break out into a song. (laughs) They're so overwhelmed with emotion. That's, That's what the gospel does to us. It makes our hearts sing. That's how you know something happened. Not just intellectual affirmation, not just a change in the lifestyle, but at the deepest level, something has happened. Your heart feels things it didn't used to feel before. And so you sing, you write poems, and you dance. That's exactly what we're going to do next. We're going to sing. If you're a believer in Jesus, sing. Sing loud. Nobody cares if you have any talent. Just sing out. Jesus is pleased with that expression of your heart. If you're not a believer, would you consider this Jesus, the one who died and rose for you, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the one who can bring you into the family of God, adopted as a child of God? the one who can explain reality to you through the gospel, the one who is himself the secret to a happy, fulfilling, meaningful life, the one who can make your heart sing.
Would you consider Jesus? If you're not a believer, now you can become a believer. You can be welcomed into a family like ours. And you can sing with us because Jesus is worth it. And church is a glorious thing. So let's, I'm going to ask the musicians to come up and let's, let's sing together.